Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. And of course, happy Halloween. I know most of you are probably bracing yourselves for what lies ahead today, but uh, hang in there. I remember I remember Halloween in schools all too well. <laughs> I'm on the road this week, uh, heading for Huntsville, Alabama today for the final session of three that I'm doing this year with that group in Madison County Schools in Huntsville. Then off to Green Bay, Wisconsin for two days. And then I'll be finishing up the week in Wickenburg, Arizona on Friday, so home Friday night for a quick turnaround before leaving again on Sunday. A few reminders as we get going this week, grading from the inside out, the two-day training, that'll be in Minneapolis, Minnesota, December 1st and 2nd. And the webinar with the Michigan Assessment Consortium, that webinar is coming up this Wednesday, November 2nd, from 1 o'clock until 3.30 Eastern Time. We'll have links in the show notes for all of those events. Uh, Make sure you you check that out. Uh, Thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. And of course, a big thank you to those of you who are longtime listeners. I appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is Dave Schmidt. Dave is an education author and a speaker. Uh, Today, we discuss his latest book, Poking the Bear, A Guide for Engaging in Conversations That Matter Most. In an assessment corner this week, we have another listener question, this time about AP exam formats. So keep those questions coming. I love getting those questions from listeners. So that is today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Dave Schmidt is coming up. But first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with some thoughts on mutual respect, specifically within the context of a debate. Now, I'm going to intentionally leave out the details of what caused me to think about this because I have no beef with anyone and I don't really want anyone to think that I'm coming for them or calling them out because like most exchanges I have, whether it be face-to-face or on social media or anything like that, they actually cause me to reflect on the bigger picture. So the issue isn't really about the acute situation, it's more about the larger question. Now, the larger question for me that came up this week is that is this, when, when are you no longer obligated to show respect? In other words, does there ever come a point where all bets are off and you no longer have to show the level of respect that you would like in return when you're engaged in a debate? Now, I think we can all agree that in any debate situation, mutual respect is the most favorable approach, that we debate the merits of an idea we debate our particular position, we be open to hearing others' perspectives, maybe try to find some common ground, and if we can't, well, at least we leave the conversation with a better understanding of each other's point of view. That would be the best case scenario. But is that the norm these days? I'm not so sure. But okay, so here's the question I'm really contemplating. If one of the parties involved in a debate is perceived to be disrespectful or not acting in good faith, is that when all the rules of engagement get tossed out the window and we hurl disrespect right back at them? It seems we have two choices when it comes to that pivotal moment when somebody has been disrespectful toward you, right? When you're on the receiving end of disrespect, you've got two choices. One, you can hurl it right back at them, right? Stoop to their level and proclaim that if you're not going to respect me, then I'm not going to respect you. You're not acting in good faith, so neither will I. And then what happens is the whole conversation devolves into something far different than the original point of the debate. I'm not so sure this is the way to go. I think mutual respect, of course, is important. I really do. 
But I also subscribe to the idea that once you start debating methods, in most cases, you know, debating the person's style or their approach, it starts to feel like you're losing the debate of ideas. I don't know that that's always the case, but I definitely subscribe to that. Would it make a difference to you if the person you perceive to be being disrespectful holds a disproportionate amount of power? What if it was your boss or or maybe somebody who has a higher standing in a field? Does that make a difference to you? Like, I, I'm not sure. So on the one hand, we can just hurl disrespect right back at that person and say, if you're not going to respect me, I'm not going to respect you. Now, the other option we have, of course, is to simply call it out, to, to say to that person, look, I'm not sure you're debating in good faith here, or that feels a little dismissive or disrespectful of my position. You know, maybe you say something like, um, you know, to, to reduce my position or approach to an oversimplified caricature or to create a straw man seems a little unfair. And we all know that that's the right way to approach this, right? But it's way easier said than done because, partly because, we don't want to do it. We just want to hurl it right back at that person. I mean, the, these days, the rates of whataboutisms seem to be off the charts. You know, call someone out for their dismissive or disrespectful words or actions, and it's almost instinct to now say, well, what about them? What about what they said? Why don't they have to show respect, right? What about the what, what about isms in our society today seem to be rampant? Now, maybe it's all true. Like maybe that person should have been more respectful, for sure. But is that one of the rules of engagement in, in debate? If others show no respect, then they don't get any? I think what gets lost in all of this sort of self-righteousness and what about isms is the question of who you want to be. Is that who you want to be? Do you want to be the type of person where when there's any hint of disrespect, you become just as disrespectful as them? Is that, is that what you want people to see in you? Is that what you want them to think of you? Now, you might feel justified in what you said or what you did in response to that person, but it may be important to remember, there can often be a wider audience. And that wider audience, again, whether face-to-face -face or on social media, that wider audience starts to learn things about us by the way we react in those types of situations. If there is, for example, a debate at a faculty meeting or at a conference where there are other participants watching and listening in on the conversation, we really should be mindful of how we come across like I said, on social media as well. Now, you might get some likes and retweets out of hurling disrespect back at somebody, but is it worth it? Is it worth revealing that side to you? In any debate, someone has to be the one to get the conversation back on track. But it feels now more than ever that we rush, maybe even crave the opportunity to fire back, put someone on blast and claim innocence because like a five-year-old might proclaim, they started it. Sometimes in these exchanges, we have to, you know, independent of the person we're debating or disagreeing with, we have to ask ourselves, who do I want to be in these situations? I know, again, that's easier said than done. And I look, I'm not sitting here trying to tell you that I always get it right because I don't. But I do think being reflective on how you engage is essential to ensure that you don't become that which you loathe. We can all let our courage, especially our keyboard courage, get the best of us. 
But maybe now is the time for every one of us to ask a simple question. Who do I want to be when I engage in the debate of ideas? What do I want the wider audience to see in me as I engage with others? You know, I know that social media rewards extreme and sarcasm and outrage and definitiveness, and it never rewards nuance. But almost everything, especially in education, requires nuance to arrive at meaningful solutions or common ground. Who do you want to be in those situations? That is the question. Joining me today for the interview is Dr. Dave Schmidt. Uh, Dave has earned a reputation for being a disruptor of the status quo. He's an innovator and a change agent. He has served as a classroom teacher, school-based administrator, central office director, and a professor of educational leadership. He's also the director of leadership and development with the Teach Better team. He's written multiple books. Uh, he's written books called uh, It's Like Riding a Bike, How to Make Learning Last a Lifetime, Bold Humility, and Making Assessment Work for Educators Who Hate Data But Love Kids, and his latest release with Caitlin Giordano, which is Poking the Bear, which is going to be our focus today. So Dave, want to welcome you to the podcast. Oh, I, I appreciate it. This is one of those, those interviews that I was just hoping I'd be able to do someday. So I feel like I've made it right now. <laughs> well, that's a, hey, you know what? If there's any good way to start an interview, it is to uh, send that kind of compliment to the, <laughs> to the host. I appreciate that, Dave. It was great uh, meeting you last week. We've certainly, you know, connected through Teach Better and connected online and Twitter, but we met, you know, like many people. I mentioned this with Don Harris last week is you, you meet people for the first time, even though you feel like you kind of know them. But it just it's different once you meet people. Uh, the conference was great. Uh, certainly your role. In, in having that conference play out the way it did. Uh, it was a very, very uh, spectacular event. It really was. It was a great, great to connect with people, great speakers. Uh, so congrats on that as well. I appreciate it. it. It felt like a family reunion. You know, you've got these long lost uncles and cousins. Some people yeah. you're, you're okay to, to never meet, but this was one where I felt like everybody just had to sit down and break bread together. And it was, it was so good. So good. Yeah. I, yeah, obviously the, uh, the last conference had been in 2019. So it'd been a few years before you know, the, the larger group had, had come together as a conference and, and certainly your Teach Better team, uh, the, the executive and the team that drives it have been together, but the, but the larger team that's connected to Teach Better, first time together in, in, in three years. So uh, really, really uh, excellent event. I uh, love it. We're going to talk about Poking the Bear today, uh, the book that you and Caitlin wrote, and I want to get into some of those topics. But before we do so, Dave, for those that aren't familiar with you, uh, can you br briefly take us through the resume, the journey, the professional journey? Where did you start your teaching career? Kind of where have you gone along the way? What positions have you held? And what has led you to the point where you are today? Ooh, that's a loaded question right here. What led me to here? But <laughs> All right. um, so I, I've been in education for two and a half decades. Um, in that time, you started the journey just like most people start off as a classroom teacher. I was a middle school teacher, uh, language arts and social studies. I love those awkward middle school years. Um, love the the stinky, hormonal, hairy kids. Uh, they they so re remind me of myself, and I was able to just fit right in. Um, then I started the, the progression, went from that to dean, athletic director, assistant principal, principal, uh, served as a principal in multiple schools in multiple states at multiple levels. I found my way to central office where I was an assistant superintendent and then eventually to, to higher ed where I was a professor of educational leadership. Um, it just I've been all over the place. Yeah. Uh, some people hear that and they say, oh, you have a lot of expertise. And 
I jokingly and probably honestly say, no, it's just that I'm really good at pissing people off and I stay <laughs> just long enough to stir the pot. And I'm like, all right, let's go somewhere else and start this all over again. So uh, right now I, I currently live in Pensacola, Florida, where I have a view of the bay and um, nice water and palm trees swaying. But I spent the bulk of my career freezing up in Michigan. So mm. I feel like I've seen the light now and now I have it all figured out and get to to live here, enjoy the amazing climate, and then just hop on planes and travel the country and um, speak to amazing educators all over the place and just stand beside them as they walk on their growth journey as well. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, uh, you don't rub it in that you live in Florida and uh, <laughs> as we're all approaching fall and, and getting into the winter and we're ready for that, those dark days, you're going to just be walking on the beach and, and uh, I know you won't be rubbing it in on Instagram or, or, uh, or Twitter at all. No, no, no. The, the fall <laughs> colors here. I mean, the roses are starting to bloom. So we're starting to see some of those fall <laughs> okay. colors. All right. All right. That's enough about that. Uh, the rest of us think it's unfair that some people get to live where they live, but uh, we all make choices. We all make choices. That's for sure. Uh, where in Michigan were you? Um, I started my career in Southeast Michigan in the Metro Detroit area, uh, okay. worked in a, a large district called Plymouth Canton. Uh, mm -hmm. Then I was an administrator in a couple of other districts. I was an administrator in Brandon, I was an administrator in Milan, an administrator in Trenton. So, but always in, if we were to do the Michigan hand, if you go just yeah. south of your thumb, that's where oh. I spent the bulk oh. of my career. Okay, great. Yeah, you know, you certainly have had uh, a vast career, um, pissing people off. I was just saying you can't can't keep a job. Um, I've I've been through similar stretches where it's like every every year or two you're you're changing positions. Like, am I un incapable of keeping a job here, or what is happening? But stayed just long enough to get it on the resume. Right <laughs> there, you go. <laughs> All right. So let's let's shift to uh, to poking the bear, which is something I know you love to do, and I know Caitlin loves to do. So yeah. let's just talk about the you know before we dig in. What inspired the book? Well, I, I think I think I know what inspired the book, but just for listeners, uh, you know, where were you and Caitlin coming from? Why why do you think this book was necessary? Why did you write it? What what sort of inspired you to to take this uh, this project underway? No, I appreciate the question. So, um, poking the bear, you know, the name of the book would would make somebody believe that we're just coming in and stirring the pot. We're coming in and, and just trying to get people agitated and frustrated and ripping the the band aid off of a, a lot of wounds in, in the educational field, but that's actually not the purpose behind it. What we recognize, and we meaning me and Caitlin Giordano, is that in education, a lot of people have a voice, but their voices tend to be muffled. They tend to stay quiet because they, they're not quite sure if anybody's going to listen to them. And we wanted to provide an avenue for everybody to amplify their own voice. So in Poking the Bear, we provide a, a platform where both Caitlin and I share our opinions on 24, 25 different topics, but she and I aren't seeing eye to eye on everything. She shares her opinions. I share my opinions. And then within the book itself, we provide space for people to write their own opinions, to, to write their own thoughts, because we understand and we believe that oftentimes evaluating and judging others is a first step towards reflecting on your own practice. It's easier for you to look at somebody else and say, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with what that person is saying, or I do agree with that person before you're able to look yourself in the mirror and say, but what do I truly believe? And we don't want people to just start to, to stop at the, I believe what they believe, or I disagree with what they believe. We want people to start creating their own, as lots of other people have said, their own manifesto to come up with their own belief statements. Because when you stand for something, it's a whole lot easier than standing against something. So we created Poking the Bear to, to provide this avenue for people to, to stand for something. So we encourage people to reflect, to have their conversation with themselves in the mirror, 
And then to carry that forward with their own staff, their team, their department to then engage in those conversations. Because if we're just talking pedagogy and instruction, we know that collective teacher efficacy is a major driver of student success. And we want teachers to be able to have those critical conversations that we know matter so it can drive student performance, so it can change destinies and it can change careers. It is true that in some situations, teachers' voices aren't heard by leadership. They aren't heard by the, the larger sort of uh, management, if you will, superintendent principals. But it is also true that sometimes that's just a teacher's perception, that they mm -hmm. don't think their voice will be heard, but that's not actually the case. So how do we, say, as educators, get out of our own heads and and have sort of the the the, the courage, if you will, the the strength to kind of make sure our voices are heard. Because I know a lot of people are inhibited to voice their opinion. People hesitate. They worry about, you know, frustrating principals or, or colleagues. How do we get out of our own head and, and make sure that our voice is heard? You know, I'll, I'll paint the analogy to a classroom teacher with his or her students. If the only time we allow students to voice their opinions or to share their thoughts is in a, a collective scene where the teacher asks a question to the masses and then asks the students to raise their hand and participate. You're going to see that you have a few people that will participate every single time. And you'll also recognize that there are a few people that won't ever want to share because they're, they're either worried about the perceptions or they think my voice doesn't matter, or the teacher has their own favorites who they're always going to call on, so on and so forth. And the same thing is true with adults. If the only mechanism that we are ever afforded to, to share our opinion is in front of the masses, the same thing will happen. We see this at staff meetings and professional learning opportunities when a question is asked and there's always that one, that one person that will raise their hand and voice their opinion because they think that they are speaking for the masses, because they think that their opinion matters. And it causes others to just shy back thinking, okay, well, I disagree with that person, but everybody else must agree. Otherwise, they wouldn't always be speaking up. It's up to leadership to create structures where every single person has the opportunity to share thoughts, insights, opinions, to debate, to discuss, to, to lean in. We, we experienced this during the pandemic in classrooms when we went to virtual learning and teachers learned new tricks, new, new protocols to amplify student voice, whether it was through Padlet or Flipgrid or Seesaw or whatever the platform might be, where they recognized that there were ways to create structures where you weren't just doing the yeah, but conversations where one person responds and then everybody else is responding to that person. Now it, would, it was equalized and everybody had the opportunity to share either synchronously or asynchronously. And that's what we need to create for teachers as well. We need to create a space for all educators to feel as though their voice is getting equal time or equal weight in the conversation. They almost have to be very purposeful about protocols and structures, especially if there is lower levels of trust that, mm -hmm. that uh, people will, will accept my perspective. Even if they disagree with it, there'll be a level of trust and respect there. Excellent. I am... I want to poke the bear a little bit here with you. I want to know where is the biggest source of tension between you and Caitlin in terms of your opinions or stances on particular topics? Let's stir the pot here a little bit. Oh, that's, okay. Uh, where where is the where is the biggest uh, uh, or maybe the largest chasm, or if you will, the, the the source of tension where you and Caitlin on a topic in education you just simply do not see eye to eye? So this is going to probably play into the stereotype. <laughs> but I am a, I'm a middle-aged white guy who spent the bulk of his career in administration. Yeah. Caitlin uh, is about 15 years younger than me, and mm -hmm. she has been a classroom teacher the entire time. So when we, when we have conversations, she tends to look at them through the lens of classroom teacher needs or expects or deserves X, Y, or Z. 
And I tend to look at it uh, through more of the organizational system and structures. And from the administrator, here's why I don't necessarily think that that works. And we tend to look at things just on a very binary level, almost through every single uh, situation, through the administrator, the, the leader, quote unquote, versus the teacher. And I hate to say versus, but that's how it sometimes comes across. And I think that that's how sometimes educators see it too. It's the administration versus the teacher, the teacher versus the administrator. So one of the one of the reasons that we wanted to, to do this work is that we could put both of those perspectives on the table so that people can see it. You know, empathy is an overused word that I don't think many people truly understand, but it truly means walking in somebody else's shoes. And we wanted people to be able to see and understand why sometimes the opinions and decisions are, are formed the way they are. So you're not going to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I am really trying to poke the bear here. That's okay. We can move on, Dave. That was a very, oh, okay. very, okay. very, uh, that was my political answer. answer. Yeah, that was a very good answer. And it's certainly Caitlin's not here to defend herself and tell tell you why you're wrong. Uh, but uh, I, I just was curious. Well, as to well, where well, that I'll, I'll put one out there. I'll put All one right. out there. For All, you. Right. All right. So here she and I got into a recent debate. Because I posted something on TikTok and Instagram that fired her up. And she reached out right away and said, okay, we need to talk about this. And my statement was to the point and direct. And I said, reading is overrated. And I said, reading is overrated in school. We put too much emphasis on reading in schools. And that fired her up like I've never seen. And okay. we've now had a, a, a running probably three-week-long conversation and debate about it. Um, I did get her to say last week, Dave, you're right, but I'm not going to put that out there. I'll, I'll just let, I'll let that sit. <laughs> That's just between you and I. <laughs> yeah. Hey, don't, just, just edit that out for me. Okay. Yeah, I will. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so expand on that. What do you, what do you mean by that? Reading is overrated. So, okay. This is a, a Schmidtoism. So I'll, right. I'll put that out there. So this Let's is one of those, I, I hope that other people can react to and feel free to disagree. That's ultimately the purpose, right? Disagree with what I'm going to say. All right. But I am a firm believer that the world is social studies and science. The world exists through the lens of social studies and science. It is uh, human interaction. It is the the way the world works. And we have some man-made mechanisms to help understand social studies and science. We have mathematics and we have ELA or reading or literacy, however we want to define that. But what we've done in education over the last 25, 30 years is we put more emphasis on the tools to understand the world, mathematics and literacy, than actually understanding the world itself. And we start to measure students' success or perceived future success on their ability to understand the man-made mechanisms of literacy and mathematics than actually understanding and navigating the world itself. I'm a big believer that reading is a tool to finding success in the world, but it's not the tool. Uh, I think that sometimes when we put so much emphasis on reading, especially in the school situation, we make statements like, if that student can't read, they won't be able to find success. And that limits our creativity as educators to say, if a student is struggling with reading, is there another way to still teach them about the world, to teach them how to navigate the system, as opposed to saying, if they can't read, they will never be successful. And it becomes almost an excuse for us not to be creative in the classroom. That is interesting, Dave. I know you are definitely going to be in the minority in that position. So <laughs> one go. of the, and I don't have the statistics in front of me, but how would you respond to someone who comes back and says, but, but Dave, 
you know, literacy rates are connected to economic success. They are connected to life chances. They're connected to so many different successes that different jurisdictions can claim, and whether it's a state, a province, a country. Um, the connection to literacy rates is incredibly strong. And so how do you respond to that? Yeah, it's, it's uh, a very simple argument of correlation versus causation. Okay. What we also see is that literacy rates are directly tied to social economic uh, indicators within societies, within cultures, within families. In yeah. other words, kids who read more are kids who come from families with more affluent backgrounds. Kids read based off of the experiences they have. So if, if you were to see the bookshelves to my left, I literally have thousands of books here. Yeah. And I don't have a single book here about nuclear fission or nuclear fusion or how Pluto became a dwarf planet because I don't really have a whole lot of interest in those topics. What right. I do have books about are leadership and education and things that I have life experiences about. And it's the same thing with kids. Kids will go and read about things that they already have interest in or they already have exposure to. When kids are come from families where they're able to go on vacations, they sit around the table and have conversations and they have discussions. They then pick up books to enhance the knowledge that they've already been given as a foundation. Very rarely do we as humans, whether it's adults or as children, pick up books to gain novel exposure to new con concepts and topics. So right. yeah, there is a correlation between literacy and socioeconomic and long-term success. But beyond that, there's a connection between reading and life exposure and skills of social studies and science and experiencing the world. Listeners, you uh, you heard Dave's invitation. Hit the Twitter handle is at Dave Schmidow. <laughs> uh, Instagram, if you want to come back at Dave, uh, he is open to yes. to the pushback, and we'll 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 uh, we'll leave it at that. Bring so it, yeah. I want to start the the to dig in a little bit to the the tough conversations or the important. Maybe they're not even always tough conversations, but they're important conversations. And I want to think about myself because I think in some respects it's easier, not always easy, but it's easier to uh, to poke the bear and engage in conversations with others, even some mm -hmm. of the controversial stuff, because you have a perspective or an opinion about it. I think it's much harder to set my sights on myself and interrogate my own thinking and my own habits and my own mm -hmm. practices and my own assumptions. So uh, it, I think it's pretty normal for us to all think that we've got it right. And whatever decisions we make, we tend to think I've thought this through and I've made this choice and I think this way or this is my habit, et cetera. But what are some ways that you have found successful for people to have a, a, a tough conversation with themselves to look introspectively and think about, am I getting it right? And, yeah. and how do we have those tough conversations with ourselves? I, I think the starting place is recognizing that it's not always a conversation of right versus wrong. Okay. It's almost more right versus less right. You know, we, we've created these, these ideas that if you change your mind, you are now a flip-flopper or you're admitting errors in the past as opposed to your thinking has evolved. You know, yeah. something that, uh, that I've been engaged in quite a bit lately is conversations around unlearning. You know, as a child, I believed, and I'm going to say this quietly because I might have some little ones listening, but I used to believe that there was this fat, jolly guy that came down the chimney on December 24th and placed present under my tree. But yeah. as I got older, I started, I unlearned that and started learning some new truths. I used to believe that a fairy would fly into my room and place money under my pillow when I lost the tooth. I used to believe that Pluto was a planet, but I, as I got more information, I unlearned that. Instructionally and pedagogically, there were some things that I used to believe as a classroom teacher as well. I used to believe that grades were my greatest weapon in the classroom. I had a mentor teacher, former drill instructor, who told me, grades are your greatest weapon. They will get kids to do things or not do things that, that nothing else will. And I carried on that belief for two or three years 
until I learned some new information that caused me to change that. I used to believe that learning styles were a reality, that within your lesson plans, you had to plan for audio, uh, auditory learners and visual learners and tactile learners until I started learning some different research about it. And the more I learned, the more I was able to change and evolve. And I think it's important for us to go back and think about the things that we have unlearned in our lives. And that causes us to, to reflect and realize that I don't have to get defensive about the things that I currently believe, that it's okay. And I might get some more information about new things and new approaches to, to what I currently believe, which allows me to change even more. I wonder if there's a correlation between those individuals who can be reflective and unlearn for themselves and sort of put the spotlight on themselves and, and that person's ability to engage in a conversation with colleagues. Mm -hmm. If, if I'm tough on myself in the sense that I, I reexamine my habits, I don't know what your thoughts on that are, but it makes me think that a person who is reflective of their practices, a person who thinks about what they do and is ever evolving and ever changing, doesn't find those tough conversations. Again, I don't have any data to back this up, but it feels to me as if that person wouldn't have as tough a time. But if we are unable to reflect on ourselves, then I can see there being a challenge with having those tough conversations with, with other people. Do you, do you, do you subscribe to that? Do you think there's something there? I, I do. I, I also recognize my own bias in this. Um, okay. You know, for the first 22, 23 years of my career, I struggled with admitting that I still had things to learn. I, I jokingly tell people I was more insistent on creating itty bitty schmitties than I was creating amazing educators. I wanted everybody <laughs> else to think and believe and do things my way. And as a result, I honestly craved difficult conversations because I thought this is going to be an opportunity for me to hit somebody over the head with how smart Dave Schmidto is. It's going to be an opportunity for me to, to let them know how wrong they are and how right I am. And I craved difficult conversations because I felt like it was an opportunity for me to elevate myself above others. And I think at times there are some people that still subscribe to that, that mindset. I think that there are times that educators subscribe to that mindset with students, number one. I think there are times where administrators subscribe to that with their, with their teachers. And I think there are times where some teachers subscribe to that thinking with others, that they want their voice to be heard because they want to be elevated. And in their mind, there's no, there's no conversation that is difficult. It, in my mind, where I'm at right now, there are some conversations that are really, really hard for me to have. But I also know that those are the conversations I need to be having. I experienced quite a few of those during 2020 and 2021, where I had my mindset made up about what I truly believed about some things. And I was smacked across the face with reality and recognizing a lot of my own biases that made me feel extremely uncomfortable. And now I lean into that discomfort. I lean into it because I know that on the other side, I'm going to be stronger as a result. Can you give us an example of something that that sort of smacked you in the face during during 2020 or the quarantine or, or pandemic? Yeah, this, you thought people were tweeting me about the readings overrated. Get, yeah. get ready for this. Um, I, I participated during the Black Lives Matter movement. I participated in, in marches and uh, walks and protests and found myself during each and every one, pulling up my phone, capturing pictures of myself and my family marching and posting these things on social media because I wanted people to know where I was and what I stood for. And when it really came down to it, I realized that that was the extent of my protest and my advocacy was me posting on social media what Dave Schmidt was about because I made it about me mm -hmm. and not the change that needed to take place. And the first couple of times I was confronted with that, I got extremely defensive and said, you have no idea what's going on inside my head and my heart. But then when I was pushed to actually demonstrate action 
that I was taking beyond walking a mile down a city street with a camera in my hand, it got extremely difficult for me to truly articulate what I was actually trying to change. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a hard, hard lesson for me to, to absorb and to take in and to realize I had a lot of unlearning about myself to, to take because it wasn't about me. It was about something much bigger, much more profound, something that required a lot more action beyond just a quick little selfie I was posting on Instagram. Yeah. It's, I think a lot of us went through uh, various stages of understanding and depth of understanding during during that time, for sure. Yeah. I think maybe the silver lining or the little piece of good news, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, is that in some respects, there's an ounce of good news and virtue signaling, uh, if, if that's what, it, you know, I'm not assuming mm-hmm. that's what you were that, doing, Dave. It but, absolutely was. But if, but if somebody sees your post and it causes them, even if it causes them to do more than you've done, there's a little win there, even yeah. though you yourself are recognizing uh, it's very, you know, it's certainly hard for all of us to admit um, that maybe we are doing things for performance, um, mm-hmm. to attention, um, all of those different things. So um, it's, you know, it's, it's certainly very impressive that you recognize that and are able to um, articulate that in the, in the way that you have. Can we shift now to tough conversations with our colleagues? Uh, we just yeah. talked about, you know, ourselves, the internal conflict, et cetera. Let's talk about the external. So we've identified a topic, let's say hypothetically, I've identified a topic in our school that uh, needs to be discussed, but I'm a little worried about poking the bear too hard and causing mm-hmm. some backlash. And, you know, with I've got to work with these people. I think sometimes you and I are in a different position now because we can kind of shoot our mouths off and then we fly home. And, <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's, you know, I, I, you don't have to see those people the next day in the, in the, in the, uh, in the staff room or anything like that. So when we want to engage in a, a conversation about a, uh, a you know, a controversial topic, uh, a sticky topic. Um, how do we do that with a level of finesse that prevents the unintended backlash from from our colleagues? Yeah, um, it, you know, it, this is an interesting conversation because you and I, Tom, you're right. We get to fly all over the place, and oftentimes we are called in because these kinds of oh, conversations yeah. need to happen, and they <laughs> know right. that there's safety in having somebody from the outside come in and stir the pot. conversations about grading we know they're not conversations about statistics and um and truly about the 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 arbitrary symbols we put on a page they're conversations about values and priorities and and those become sticky sticky conversations yeah and one of the the things that i would advocate for people within their local schools within their districts within their departments to do is simply ask questions not ask questions so that you can try to manipulate somebody because we know that you can ask some questions where you already have your prescribed answer in the back of your head, but truly ask questions to try to seek clarity in somebody else's understanding. Ask questions and don't respond. Just ask questions to try to figure out somebody else's perspective and be okay if they say, I don't know. If you ask a question about whatever the topic is, it it could be something as mundane as, does homework have value? Ask a question and ask somebody, do you assign homework? Why do you assign homework? Do you see that it results in more learning? And don't engage in the debate. Don't say, well, I think, just listen. Take some notes on it, reflect on it, and see if there's anything that you can learn from their response, regardless of what you believed when you entered into the conversation. Just ask questions. And then at a later time, go back and respond and say, hey, I've been thinking about what you said, and I'm wondering X, Y, or Z. And have follow-up conversations. If you get yourself to the place where your thinking has evolved, go to that person and let them know, well, your responses have really caused me to reflect on blah, blah, blah. I'm wondering um, about this and then phrase one of your beliefs as a question or a wondering, not as I completely disagree, you need to change. But 
always engage in curiosity first, genuine curiosity. I think there needs to, yeah, you're, I, I, I like the, that you added genuine because I think there needs to be a level of authenticity there in terms of asking the questions. But I think I, I love that idea of approaching these controversial, sticky topics through the lens of curiosity and asking others, you know, to, to voice their perspective, opinion, um, you know, practice, habit, whatever, whatever it is we're trying to talk about. I love the idea of drawing that out and then not necessarily gauge, engaging in the debate in the immediacy, but, but engaging in the debate over time mm -hmm. so that we go back and forth and I reflect on what you said. And, and then I come back to you a couple of days later and say, it's caused me to think about this. What do you think? As opposed to let's sit around the table. We've got two hours to hash this out. That's where I think the tension starts to rise. You're, sure. you're absolutely right. You know, going into, you know, poke the bear, rattle some cages. I get all sorts of uh, phrases thrown at me about, Hey, you know, we need you to rattle some cages about grading. It's like, all right, I can do that. Um, but what is your plan for after, you know, the, mm -hmm. the fallout? How are you going to navigate the conversation? Do we just want everybody upset and angry or, or do we do we have a follow up to that? How are you going to follow through with the faculty for sure? So, yeah, I think it's you know, it's it's important to, to me. It comes back to to trust. And if you have a, a trusting relationship, uh, I think that's probably why you and Caitlin are in, able to engage in such strong conversations, because there is a level of trust between the two of you. You know each other. You've 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 worked together before. And, and I think that helps um, ease some of that tension. Do you think? Uh, oh, I, I absolutely. You know, yeah. the, 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 the origin story of the book is actually she and I were just involved in some of these and it became a conversation of, hey, should we record this? Should we put this in, in writing? I wonder what other people would think. And there's this level of vulnerability then to take that debate and make it public yeah. and have other people now weigh in where you don't necessarily have that level of trust. And you know that some people are going to come at you and they're going to take things out of context and not have the, the willingness to engage in the conversation and the true dialogue and debate. We know that. But ultimately, the goal is to then start the next conversation. Like, like you said, it's, it's, it's almost the, the same thing that I went through back in 2020 and 2021 is if our display can allow other people to then grow and can have that butterfly effect, then right. it's worth it. Yeah. Fantastic. I, I, I think it's, it's, uh, that, that, uh, sets a tone and it creates an atmosphere where conversations are respectful, but to the point, yeah. uh, and, and trusting. What is Dave a conversation in education? Now you've talked you talked about reading already, but let's 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 think about a conversation in education right now that you think is long overdue that far too many people are unwilling to have. They're afraid to have the conversation, but it's a conversation from your perspective Dave that is long overdue. Okay. Um, and again, uh, this is going to, I'm going to be reading your facial cues on this one Thomas I say it's, this. It's it's at Dave Schmidto. Uh, <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> So the idea of formative and summative assessment is one that I talk about a lot. And there are many people that label their assessments before they utilize their assessments. And they say, this is going to be a formative assessment, AKA it's not going to have much value or use to me. I'm going to do it just as a reflective exercise, but then I'm going to use that unreliable, un, uh, invalidated data to inform my next steps. And then I'm going to have summative, which is going to come at the end of instruction. It's going to be more valid, more reliable, but I can't do anything with it because it comes at the end. I think the idea of labeling assessments prior to their use completely diminishes the value of their use. And we need to get educators to start utilizing all evidence formatively and summatively in tandem. 
I couldn't agree more with you, Dave. Uh, you're, you're not going to get any facial cues from me because <laughs> uh, I use a very similar phrasing. I, I will often say to participants in workshops, labeling something formative does not make it so. Mm-hmm. Uh, an assessment is only formative when it's used formatively. And listeners could probably know how I was going to answer because they've heard me say this a thousand times on the yeah. podcast. But but that's it's about action, right? So you know, one of the phrases I'll use, I'll, I'll ask participants to spot the error in the following statement. And I'll say, you know, oh, Tom, we... We do formative assessment all the time. And what I'm trying to get them to spot is the word do as opposed to the word use. And, and it really is about the action. And using an assessment formatively means it's, it's, we've, we've predetermined the purpose, but we're, not, we're using it to make that instructional decision, thinking about its utility. But every assessment can be used summatively or formatively yeah. because the distinction between the two is in how you use the information. So you're not going to get about, any... Uh, not about the weight in the grade book. There you go. <laughs> not, that's right. So the, that conversation is definitely ongoing. And I think we've evolved there. But still... I think where where I think you're spot on is that um, I am a little bit surprised in 2022 that that is still a conversation that needs to be had in so many places. You would mm-hmm. think at this point with the the way that assessments evolved, you know, since the late 90s and early 2000s and the standards movement, you'd think that we would have a deeper, more you know, pervasive understanding of the distinction between formative and summative assessment. But it seems like in some places we still don't have that. Well, it's it's part of the larger conversation that we have all across North America where it's so much easier just to label than it is to to do right. something about the label where good student, bad student, honor roll student, at risk student, special education student, mm-hmm. um, effective teacher, ineffective teacher, formative, summative. It's easier just to slap a label on it and keep on moving. Yeah, that's, that's true. And the, the idea of summative at the end, summative is not always at the end. Summative is big, formative is small. All yeah. of those different things are not really, um, you know, because not really spot on with those definitions because it is how you use the information. So assessment is used formatively, then you can call it a formative assessment for sure. All right, Dave, you talked about reading. I'm going to ask you for another one. This last question is before we finish up with the final two questions mm-hmm. of our conversation, but yeah. the floor is yours. You have your position on reading being overrated, but I want to know about another position, a perspective or an idea where you know you're in the minority, but you don't care that this is a hill. You're prepared to die on this hill. So while everyone else is zigging, you're kind of zagging, and this is a perspective, a topic or an idea that you just won't let it go because even though you feel like you're in the minority, you kind of feel like you're right. And you are just setting me up. At Dave Schmidt. Oh, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> Can't wait to see the DMs coming my way. Um, let's, let's just hope they come in DMs and it's not just blowing up everybody's That's seat. right. Um, <laughs> um, okay. So I'll, I'll say this. I do not think teachers are leaving the profession in masses because of their pay. I, I think the, the pay issue is the cop-out issue where we – we meaning society, we meaning administration, we meaning the collective educational society can use that as, as our excuse because it's something that we don't have control over. So we blame pay. But I can tell you that when I started off as a teacher two and a half decades ago, I wasn't getting paid squat either, but I knew it going in. But one of the things I did have was I had a cohort. I had people that I could lean into. I had other people that I was able to have conversations with and commiserate with and grow with and be part of a collective force with. I also knew at the time I was going to be growing and there were going to be people that were going to grow me. I feel like there are other issues at play right now that have taken away some of that autonomy, some of that collective growth, some of the the cohort models of, of unity that are causing people to feel like they're on an Island that are feeling that make them feel like they can't grow. They can't change. They can't evolve. 
And that's what's causing people to leave. It's pay might be an imp- uh, a factor for some people, but I also know right now the latest statistic that I saw was that 83% of the educators who left over the last two years left for jobs that pay equal or less than the, they were making as a teacher. So, well, you know, I don't, I don't actually disagree with you on that. Listeners will recall that last week I had an opening commentary about, about this very topic, about teachers leaving the profession and asking the question of society, you know, what did you think would happen when there's this relentless onslaught against the profession, um, teachers under this, this purity test that no one can live up to? And the level of disrespect that the profession is, is experiencing, which I think is unprecedented in some places, um, at some point, society has to realize that you're going to get the education system you deserve or ask for, and people are mm-hmm. going to start leaving. And really great teachers, people who are just born to work with kids, uh, are going to say, enough's enough. I can't, I can't do it anymore. I would agree with you. I don't think it has anything to do with the pay. We all know. Um, now, I would say that in some places, the compensation is incredibly disrespectful sure. uh, and demeaning to the job. But generally speaking, uh, the salary, we all know what the salary is going in and, and we know what we're up against. But uh, I, I would agree. So I'm zagging with you there, uh, Dave. I think that I don't think the pay is a reason why. I think it's satisfaction. It's level of respect. It's it's all of that. So mm-hmm. I, I'm with you. So there's two of us here. Uh, on, so you're not alone. Fair uh, enough. Don't uh, don't tweet so uh, Dave at Tom that. Shimmer. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, they know how to get at me, Dave. They they uh, they have my email. They have my handles. They have all of that. So two questions left as we finish up. I've shifted this around a little bit, listeners. You'll recognize and and just as we go along. But two questions left as we finish up. This is a question I ask everybody who comes on the podcast, and it's quite simply this: educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? How to make sure that the teachers that are doing things for the right reasons recognize that they need to keep going and that there are other people that believe in them and support them and that they don't need to adjust change pivot and cave to the masses yeah yeah how do we do that how do we make sure what are some ways that that you found that that helps bring that level of renewal to people to make them sort of feel that way you know you know tom just in this conversation when i said i'm going to be reading your facial expressions and when i see that smile or i hear you say hey at least there's a there's another one that believes it that goes a long way and sometimes if, if, if you're able to see the good work happening and just letting people know that you see it, you appreciate it, and you affirm it, that goes a long way. So when I see people post something, when I see uh, some of my own kids' teachers doing something, affirming it, making sure that I see them, that they know that I see them. And I'm a, no, I'm a nobody, but just having somebody say, I see it and I recognize it, and there's somebody here willing to stand beside you goes so, so far. So I encourage people to, to don't let, don't let the masses carry the weight of the conversation. When you see something that is positive, affirm it, recognize it, and let people know that they have, they have value. We all want to be seen. We all want to be heard. We all want, we all want to be valued. We don't need to be uplifted above people. We just want to be recognized for who we are. And I think that's a really great point. All right. Last question, Dave, as we finish up, we're going to go on and finish up on a lighter note here. Um, I love food. I would fashion myself as a a bit of an amateur foodie. I I wouldn't say I'm the obnoxious type, but uh, I've been to Pensacola one time, but it was a long time ago. You live in Pensacola. And so what I want to know from you is, Where's the best sort of hidden gem, hole in the wall, kind of like unbelievable food restaurant in Pensacola? Where's the best place to eat in Pensacola? So I I moved here a couple of years ago because my parents live here. 
And I would say my mom's kitchen is the, the number one place in Pensacola. <laughs> How am I but, supposed to go there? <laughs> well, yeah, there's two, two issues with that answer. Number one is I, I can't call my mom's house a hole in the wall. And two, yeah. I don't think she's going to open the door for strangers to come in and say, come, right. come try my lasagna. Knock um, on the door. I know Dave. <laughs> right. Well, you can try it. She might let you in. I might or she might it. scare you away. Um, right. But I would say if you're looking for a public venue, there's yeah. a little place just a couple of miles down the street from me called the Florabama. Not necessarily a hole in the wall, but it is a dive, but it is well known now. Florabama, uh-huh. literally on the border of Florida and Alabama. It's okay. a dive bar where there's live music all day, every day. Kenny Chesney has actually had a concert out on the beach there. Nice. Uh, they have the best shrimp and, shrimp and grits and a nice little drink called the Bushwhacker, which is basically, think of a Wendy's Frosty with rum in it. It's amazing. Dang. You're, you're speaking my language when you say shrimp and grits. The first time I uh-huh. had shrimp and grits, I was in South Carolina, and I'd never had it before. It it looks very unassuming and and uh, just comes to you. I, I wanted to lick my bowl. I, I could not. <laughs> right. Like, it was so good that I've now started making it at home because, of course, here on the west coast of Canada, shrimp and grits is not, you know, obviously right. a, a dish that is uh, native to this area. It's not a popular dish here at all. So I've tried to figure out how to make it. But uh, so you're speaking about so shrimp and grits. At the Flor- Florabama, the Florabama, Florabama yeah. in Pensacola, Florida. Listeners, you ever get down to, to Pensacola, you know where to go. Um, fantastic. Listeners, you can connect with Dave. I've given you the Twitter handle several times so you can tweet at him or DM him. But it, once again, Twitter, Instagram, uh, both the handles the same. It's at Dave Schmidt. Uh, Dave is also on Facebook and LinkedIn. Uh, the website is schmidt.net. And uh, Dave, one thing we did not talk about during our conversation is your podcast, Lasting Learning Podcast. Just uh, briefly tell listeners about uh, the podcast and how they can uh, tap into that and, and uh, subscribe. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, the Lasting Learning Podcast, it's a, it's a podcast that went through its own evolution where it started off five years ago with me pontificating, thinking people cared what I had to say. And I quickly realized nobody cares about Dave Schmidt's opinions on anything. <laughs> and it shifted um, to me then trying to amplify hidden voices in the field. And outside of the field, just people that have learned an extremely important lessons in life, uh, whether they are classroom teachers, administrators, or professionals out in the real world. For example, I've had Melissa Bernstein from Melissa and Doug Toys on talking about her, her journey. I had a woman named Jessica Gentry on, uh, Jessica Leahy on. So just going out and trying to find amazing people that can instill the things that matter most to us, that can cause you to pause, think, and reflect about the things that matter most. So Lasting Learning Podcast, feel free to check it out. Fantastic. Um, I, Dave, I, I think you're selling yourself a little short. I think people do care what you have to say. You have a very large following. I, pe- I think people look to you as a leader in education, as somebody who inspires them. So um, try, to, try not to diminish that too much because you also need to be seen. You need to be heard. And I think people are very inspired by the work you do and, and certainly consider you one of the, the people that they follow your perspective matters a lot to people. So you need to know that. Um, Dave, this was, uh, was great. Uh, thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Let's do it again. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, we have a listener question from Joey who comes from Maryland, I, I think. Uh, This is what Joey writes. Uh, She says, I teach two AP social studies classes. 
I've really been working over the past two years to incorporate more standards-based grading and general intentionality in developing assessments, and I think so far that I've been doing a good job. Always tweaking, she said, but I've seen a huge change in my approach to instruction and assessment as well as my students focusing on learning. That said, she says, AP is inherently test prep. As I've said on the podcast, she says, as you've said on the podcast in the past, tests are real and certainly preparing for professional exams like the bar exam or the NCAP require prep. Do you think there's anything? So here's the question. Do you think there's anything wrong with melding a standards-based approach through one kind of assessment, but continuing to include tests that model the actual AP exam style questions so the kids know what to expect? Okay, so that's that's the question, essentially. Do we incorporate that style? So let, let me start here. Being standards-based is not contingent upon a certain type of assessment method or format. I really think we need to retire this whole, you're not really standards-based if you do this, or you're not really standards-based if you do that. And you've heard me say this on the podcast many times before, but it's worth repeating. There is no purity test, okay? Standards-based grading means grading based on the standards. That's it. And tests, as I've said many times on this podcast before, can absolutely be a part of any standards-based approach. Now, it is true that we should seek to vary our assessment formats within certain assessment methods because if we're too test-focused, we start to sort of favor those who are, are or who find tests more favorable, if you will. It can include some implicit bias and, and the way we craft our assessments and all of that. So so and we've been we've talked about that before. So it is true that we should be seeking um, to vary our assessment formats within certain types of assessment methods, right? We've got selected response, constructive response, and performance assessment being those three overarching assessment methods. And inside those methods, there are many formats of questions, right? Many formats of prompts, many ways to go about those, those assessments. A test can potentially contain all of them. Though I'm not a big fan of that because it's likely that if the test has all of those on the test, like a selected response, constructive response, and performance task, it's it's likely that you're assessing both the standard and the underpinnings because selected response and constructive response are rarely, if ever, both the right fit for a particular standard. Because if a standard is conducive to constructed response, then it's likely the selected response questions would be the underpinnings, the definitions, the formulas, the key people, you know, events, all of those different things. If selected response is conducive to the standard, uh, which is admittedly rare, and once you get past the upper grades of elementary school, you know, once the lower grades of elementary school, I should say, upper grades of elementary school and beyond, it's rare that selected response is the right assessment method for the level of sophistication of the standards. But if it's true that selected response is the right method, then the constructed response prompt is likely too sophisticated for the standard. Look, I can't paint, paint it all with the same brush. You'll probably find exceptions to that rule. But generally speaking, if a standard is conducive to selected response, constructed response is either overkill, you're asking them to write things out in long form unnecessarily, or you're asking them a question that is beyond the, uh, the depth of thinking and the cognitive complexity of the standard. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I mean, those questions can be used as extension questions, challenge questions, or something like that. Again, nothing wrong with it per se, but it but it needs to be kept out of the determination of the level of proficiency on the standard. But the bottom line is that tests can absolutely be a part of your repertoire, as I've said many times on this podcast. So let's go back to Joey's question again. Joey's question, do you think there's anything wrong with melding a standards-based approach through one kind of assessment, but continuing to include tests that model the actual AP exam style questions so the kids know what to expect. 
And the short answer to that question, I would say, is no, but to a point. Now, let me explain. There is this old sort of farmer's adage, if you will, in assessment that goes like this. You don't fatten the pig by continually weighing it. Now, that quote is often used in reference to, you know, overgrading, uh, not focusing on feedback, too much emphasis on summative assessment or summative determination and not using formative feedback as a way of advancing proficiency. But I would also say the same thing about test prep. There really is not much evidence in the research at all that supports the idea of repeated use of practice tests as a way to prepare students to perform well on an assessment. Because what actually matters the most is their learning. What will prepare those students for any assessment better than anything else is a deep, thorough, sophisticated understanding of what they're learning. That's how you prepare them, right? Once they have that, then they'll be prepared for anything, any type of assessment that comes along. However, an unfamiliar assessment method or format can trip up some students, for sure. So on the one hand, there's no real significant support for practice testing, say, in academia or the research. Common sense would tell me that having at least some familiarity with the method or the format and the various formats that they might encounter is going to help ensure that the assessment yields a truer picture of where the student is in their learning. A complete lack of familiarity could actually become a confounding factor in terms of the student's results. If the student does poorer than expected, for example, we might think it's because they don't understand the material as well or, or they didn't prepare as properly as they could have. That, that could all be true, but it could also be true that the format or the method threw them off. You know, confounding, of course, meaning to throw into confusion. So when you have a confounding factor like the format or the style, it would throw the results into confusion, if you will. The res results would be less clear, uh, and those confounding factors would make it difficult for us to get a true read on, on where students are, which is why in education research, well, research in general, it can be so challenging. You know, confounding factors make it very difficult to draw a straight line or make a clear connection between your independent and your dependent variable. So we have to watch that. I think, I think there's balance here. So, so for me, Joey, the bottom line is this. I wouldn't become obsessed with replicating the AP exam style and format. I would focus more on their, developing their learning, their trajectory, feedback, formative work, all of that. But I would make sure that my students had enough familiarity so there's a level of comfort that allows them to focus solely on thoroughly answering the questions. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the pod, tomshiberpod at gmail.com if you've got questions for Assessment Corner or if you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder to check the show notes for the links for those upcoming professional learning events this, uh, this month and also next month. Um, obviously, that webinar is coming up uh, this week. Uh, next week, my guest will be Laura Rizzo. Laura is a former high school counselor who is now a speaker, a teen coach, and a staff developer who focuses on social-emotional learning. I met Laura at the Teach Better conference a couple of weeks ago, so really looking forward to that conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, but a rating and review on any platform, of course, will help grow the podcast reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. 
Have a great week, everyone.